Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Not too long ago, the idea of women freezing their eggs to preserve fertility seemed like something out of a sci-fi book, but it has now become a much more reasonable option for women. Here's infertility specialist Jim Toner in a 2010 interview with Atlanta's WSB-TV. For years, we've been able to freeze sperm and freeze embryos, but not plain old eggs. But being able to freeze eggs now opens up a whole lot of options to people that had none before. The number of women who decided to freeze their eggs nearly doubled during the pandemic. What kind of impacts will this have long term and will the trend continue to grow? Two years ago, we talked to experts to learn more about why more women have decided to freeze their eggs. Later in the show, we are revisiting our conversation from earlier this year on mentoring programs for at-risk kids. I get to learn new places around me, stuff that I didn't know about. It's really fun. One of Boston's oldest youth development organizations, Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts, shared stories of successful mentor-mentee relationships that help kids create lifelong bonds. But first, our conversation on why women are choosing to freeze their eggs. I was joined by Nina Ritsakova, reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF, John Petroza, director of Massachusetts General Hospital's Fertility Center, and Nikki Richardson, who decided to freeze her eggs. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Etsakova. You pointed out something that I didn't know, that the demand has continually gone up when the experimental label was no longer attached to this, and that was uh, 2012. Uh, Talk to me about that, because I didn't know what happened in that moment that uh, suddenly made this procedure go from experimental to commonplace. Yes, uh, the acceptance of egg freezing in the scientific community definitely was wide-reaching and it reached patients and they elected to proceed with this technology and there's a lot of sort of commercialization of this technology as well through things like egg freezing parties and there was a lot more uh, widespread awareness of the technology. But interestingly, we've also seen a lot of increased rates of egg freezing spurred on by the coronavirus and some of the changes in relationship status and some of the difficulties in uh, finding finding partners. So we've seen a lot of increases over the course of last year in the use of this technology. Were you surprised by that? We were surprised to see our rates go up. However, um, when we start talking about it on an individual patient basis, such as what I see in my office, you can understand some of the reasoning behind it. Um, There's a lot of fragile relationships. Um, A lot of people are having difficulty uh, finding new partners uh, as meeting people (laughs) in the real world becomes more difficult. So when I speak to my patients about it, some of the reasons are, are quite clear. And so it becomes less surprising to analyze the numbers and the figures when you look at it from a more uh, human and individual patient perspective. And just to put this in perspective, when you say the rates went up, what was the margin, the percentage margin of increase? 
We've seen about a 30 to 50% increased rate of egg freezing in our practice, uh, and that's compared to numbers pre-pandemic. So looking at the six months leading into the pandemic, and then looking at the same uh, corresponding uh, months this uh, later year, so later 2020, heading into 2021, um, the rates have gone up uh, significantly. So Nikki Richardson, you were a part of that percentage increase, some of the millions of women that, that elected to have their eggs frozen. So first tell me why you decided to do it. Um, it's been something I've been thinking about for the past, I would say, one to two years. Um, I just turned 35 last week, and that was just kind of in the back of my mind that if I was going to do this, I wanted to do it before my 35th birthday. I work in labor and delivery, so fertility is discussed all the time, and there's a label placed on women after 35 called um, advanced maternal age or even geriatric age. So I spoke to one of the physicians at Boston IVF, Emily Seidler, last year, and she just encouraged me to at least get my testing done to see um, how my numbers were looking. And then when I I tried to figure out how to make it feasible financially, and then I just decided um, to just do it. Describe the procedure, you know, not in great detail, but I mean briefly so people get a sense of of what's involved. Yeah, after um, last fall, I did my testing, and that looked reassuring, though that doesn't um, necessarily indicate like how many eggs you're going to get. And then when you decide to do it, it's based off of your cycle. I went in and got an ultrasound and blood work and everything looked good. And I started my injections, my hormone injections that evening. And everything is just very timely. So every two days I was going in the office in the morning before work, getting a pelvic ultrasound, um, getting blood work done, and then they would adjust my medications if needed. I was doing two to three injections into my abdomen nightly for almost two weeks. And then um, once my follicles were the appropriate size and amount and my um, hormone levels looked good, they scheduled my procedure. And the procedure was the easiest part. I went in the morning. um, They got me prepped within 30 minutes, gave me an IV, gave me some antibiotics. I met with the anesthesiologist. And then I went into the room. I laid down on the table. I took a nice nap thanks to some uh, a medication called propofol, and I woke up 30 minutes later feeling great, and they had retrieved all of my eggs. Are you glad you did it? Oh, I'm, I'm so, so thankful. Anyone I talk to, I would highly encourage to do this. Um, I've had patients in the past that um, were in a similar situation as me. They did egg retrieval, and they just said that it took the pressure off of them for just dating you know, they were able to date smarter and just, you know, knowing that their fertility was kind of preserved just gave them peace of mind. I'm so, so thankful I did it. Well, somebody else that we all know highly suggests that this is a procedure that women like yourself should undertake. Here's Oprah promoting egg harvesting as a backup. You need to break up with him. And you also need to harvest your eggs. If I was a 34-year-old woman out here in the world where it's hard out here for a pimp, pimp, as you say, I would be harvesting my eggs. That was Oprah with the OG Chronicles as she and Gail having a girlfriend chat. And the issue of uh, just as Dr. Restakova has pointed out, the fragile relationships came up and she thought, you know, this is something that women should do. So now, Dr. Petroza, because it's so commonplace now, you know, this is something that you're talking to more and more of your patients about over at the Mass General Hospital Fertility Center. First, tell me how much a part of your practice this has become? 
Oh, I, I agree with Nina that um, fertility preservation has become one of the biggest and fastest growing parts of our practice um, ever since this became non-experimental. We've, we probably have seen about a 10 to 20% increase in growth um, over those years. When we look at what's happened since the pandemic, I don't think we've seen quite the growth that maybe Boston IVF has seen, but we definitely have seen a little bit of an increase. And there's no doubt that the number of increase about fertility preservation has increased. So there are roughly, as I understand it, about two groups of women, or women fall into two categories, uh, who might approach uh, and be thinking about this. There may be women who have a disease that could interfere with their fertility, and then others, like Nikki, who are looking long-term about their reproductive health. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, that, that's correct. You know, so for those that have a disease, it, it's a no-brainer. You know, for a lot of these women, they're either um, single, and, and there's no doubt that we're starting to see patients with cancers at a much earlier age, specific cancers like colon cancer and breast cancer. So these patients are going to go through some chemotherapies that may render them with some difficulty with ovarian function. Um, but those that are coming in for non-medical reasons has been part of our fastest growing practice and one that we spend a lot of time consulting our patients and talking to them about what's involved with egg preservation. I think it's important to know who are the best candidates for this and who might have a better chance later on, because you can extract the eggs at this point and that can go very well, but that's not a guarantee that when you get ready to use them that it might be a successful procedure. So let's let's break that down, Dr. Petroza. That's absolutely right. And, and I think this is where really being clear with patients is very, very important because people do come in at various ages. Um, you know, we have people coming in who are in their mid-20s. We have patients who are coming in in their, in their early to mid-40s. And there's no doubt that each of those age groups represents a, a certain potential for success. And, and one of the things I always counsel patients is, listen, we have very, very limited data, right? This has been off the experimental list since late 2012 with ASRM sort of putting their documentation in 2013. So we have very, very limited data. And most of the data that we have now are really on patients who are egg donors, women who are in their 20s, who are freezing their eggs, and we track that data on an annual basis. What we have very little long-term data on and success rate that on are women who are coming in who are doing this for non-medical reasons who are in their 30s because it's so new. It's such a new technology. But the limited data that we have, and there are some nice papers out there. There's one from Shady Grove, which is in Virginia, and another one from here in Boston, from Brigham and Women's Hospital, where we have some some information we can share with patients because when we sit down, when I sit down with the patient, the first thing I want to know is, okay, age is a big part of this, and what are your ovaries doing now for that given age. And then with these graphs that have come out from these papers, I can show them, okay, if we're going to do this, and if we're going to do this right, this is what your chances are of having a live born based on the number of eggs that you need. So if someone comes in and she's 32, I can say, okay, you need about 12 to 20 eggs to have about an 80 or 90% chance of having a healthy baby when it's all said and done. If someone comes in and they're 39 or 40, guess what? You're going to need about 40 eggs to have that 80% chance of having a baby. And so when I look at their ovarian function, it's very important that they understand this is what I think you're going to do with this cycle. So we have all these tests. We have blood tests that can determine ovarian function. We have ultrasounds that can determine ovarian function. And I can get a sense as to how I think they're going to respond and how many eggs I think we're going to get in general. 
And as I sort of look at and, and discuss with the patient, I can say, okay, you may need to do this once. You may need to do this twice. You may need to do this three times. Um, and that's important to know because you don't want a patient to come in and be disappointed to say, listen, you know, uh, I didn't get as many eggs as I thought, and I know we need a certain number um, for this to be successful. It's important to be transparent. It's important to share the information. It's important to share what we're expecting to get to make this um, a worthwhile venture for the patient. Hmm. Now, Dr. Rostakova, I'm hearing also, even though it's a common procedure, it's no longer experimental, we've talked about how many more women are doing it. We've heard from Nikki about why she chose to do it that there still remains a stigma of some sort for some women. So, Dr. Restikova, are you seeing that? Have you uh, heard that from your patients? Interesting question. I, I feel that most patients who have made their way to me have already shaken off maybe some of the stigma attached to this. And I do feel that a lot of the sort of the reason that the stigma is becoming less and less is that there are more people talking about it and there are more just folks like you and folks in the media who are addressing these issues and through more awareness and through more people being willing to share their story it becomes less stigmatized and i would add to that there's a lot more insurers there's a lot more people thinking about this offering this as a retention tool for their employees to offer comprehensive fertility benefits packages and so the availability of this type of technology and the ability for being covered by your insurance through your workplace is allowing more people to start talking about it and actually seeking this out as part of their employment package but nikki as you found out not for everybody because you had to fund this yourself yes i did which was a big factor for me so I personally probably only had the funds to do one cycle, and the physicians were stating, like, you really just don't know what your outcome is going to be until the day after, you know, the day of your procedure where they say we collected this many eggs. But I just, for Christmas last year, asked my family, you know, just for money towards my egg fund, and I took out of my savings. And I work in, in Massachusetts, where it's one of the only states in the country where IVF is covered for women, but I spoke to my insurance and my pharmacist, and they stated that you have to prove, you know, infertility to get anything covered. So everything for me, including the medications, was all out of pocket. Did you face or fear any stigma about taking this approach? No, I actually didn't. I mean, I have a wonderful group of strong women in my life who, um, you know, would do the same. And my grandmother, who I'm visiting here right now, is 83, and she's just so proud of me and so happy that she got to see this in her lifetime and said that she would have done the same, you know, back then. So, no, I, I was very proud that I did it, but I, I could see how someone might feel that way because, yeah, you have this biological clock and the, the old term of an old maid, you know, you get to a certain age and why aren't you married? Why don't you have children yet? Is it something wrong with me? But I think just, you know, the times are changing and women are doing more of what they want in their lives, traveling, getting their careers in place before having children. If you're just tuning in, this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Two years ago, I talked to reproductive endocrinologist Nina Retsakova of Boston IVF. John Petroza, director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Fertility Center and egg-freezing patient Nikki Richardson. We discussed the increased rate of women freezing their eggs during COVID. Listen, all of these decisions are not just purely physical ones. When you are interacting with your patients, this is a question I'm going to have for all of you, what the emotional state is of those patients by the time they've come to you, they've made the decision. As you've said, many of them have dismissed the potential stigma, and here they are. But, you know, this is a big decision. It's a very big decision. 
some things that we've touched on already are kind of the physical factors of, of going through the process. And Nikki, thanks for doing a great job overviewing all the steps um, of, of the process. I think that was really, really clear and just so helpful for, for people. So there's the physical features. We've already talked about some of those financial, um, but but the emotional process is tough. And, and a lot of times what we're seeing in our office and curious to hear if Dr. Petrosa is hearing the same, but we're seeing people coming at various inflection points in their, either their relationships or there's something's happened in their life and they're now ready to take this step. And so I am seeing a lot of patients who have just come out of a tough relationship or have now realized that a relationship is not going to be proceeding in the pathway that they had hoped. Um, so it is a very emotional process. However, I do feel that egg freezing for some represents a lot of hope that there is fertility potential and you know future relationship potential because a lot of patients are freezing these eggs in anticipation of potentially fertilizing them with a future partner. And so it can be also a very hopeful process for people. So although we go through the full range of the emotional spectrum through through some of our consultations, um, it's really nice to come out at the other end um, having something to show for it. And hopefully that's, that's a good egg yield. And I have worked with many patients who come back in the future and use those eggs too. And that's also very rewarding when they've made the right decision to freeze them um, at the time that they did. Dr. Petroza, what about you? I think, you know, patients definitely, by the time they come to me, um, have really thought this out. You know, so really they're just trying to get that final piece of information. In some ways, they're sort of wanting to confirm maybe what they've read or what they've heard from their friends and colleagues. Um, you know, these are smart people. And, and, and I think, you know, they're, they're very adamant about learning more about the process I think they appreciate when we give them the facts and we're very transparent about what's involved. There are risks involved with doing an egg retrieval. And they want to know what their chances are of success. You know, this is a big investment. You know, they're going to be paying thousands of dollars to do this, and they want to know, okay, how much am I going to have to pay in order to have a reasonable chance of this working? And I agree with Nina. You know, there, there is this, this element of security, this element of hope, and one of the nice things about freezing eggs, and I, and I even discuss this with my, my patients who have cancer, is that when you create embryos, especially if you have a partner, you know, that's something that is jointly owned. When you create eggs and you freeze them, those are yours, right? You control the destiny of those eggs. And that's a powerful, powerful thing for a woman to have. And I, and I think it really gives them that sense of hope that Nina mentioned. Nikki, you were kind enough to share some of the emotions you felt as you were going through the process. Is there more to your emotional state you'd like to point out to people that, you know, maybe they should be prepared for or something that just struck you in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I remember um, there was a few months before I started the process when I had decided to do it and I was just waiting for the right time because, you know, you're giving about two weeks to this, you know, every single day. So you want to make sure that there's a time when you have no plans or going out of town or things like that, any other engagements. Um, and leading up to it, you know, I was, I was nervous, um, you know, just of the unknown. And then I remember the first night, you know, I'm a nurse, I give injections all the time. And the first night I had to give myself the first injection, I just sat there with the needle and I couldn't inject myself at first. And, you know, it's harder to do than you think. And then I did it. And the, the next day, I was actually looking forward to doing it again. It, it really is so empowering. And I was also going to an acupuncturist in the city who was focused on fertility. And, you know, I, I had stopped drinking any alcohol and I was trying to eat, you know, foods that could help with egg quality and everything. So I just, you know, really gave it my all for those two weeks. And 
one day at work, I just started crying out of the blue, I think, just because my hormone levels were so high. And another day, they're like, oh, your estrogen's higher than we anticipated. We need you to do this one injection right away so you don't start ovulating and then we lose your eggs. So my friend had to rush to my house, get um, a medication on my fridge, bring it to work, which I injected myself in the bathroom. <laughs> so there's a lot at stake. I would say it's definitely an emotional roller coaster. Um, I just kind of trusted the process and just was like, this is out of my hands. Um, and I trusted my physician and it, it really worked out for me. So doctors, I wonder if there are myths about this procedure that you'd like to knock down in this moment and or something that you believe people really, really need to pay attention to. Because, yes, it's common and uh, yes, it's uh, safe, as we've discussed, but this is a sophisticated procedure. So I'll start with you, Dr. Petroza. I think the myth that people might have is that this is going to guarantee a pregnancy. And I think people need to realize this. This is great technology. And over the years, it's gotten better and better and better. But just by freezing eggs doesn't necessarily guarantee a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people have to realize that. Is there something else that you think it's really important for people to think about as they begin to explore the possibility of undergoing egg, egg freezing? As Nikki said, this is this is not an easy process. You know, this is... Um, going to be an investment of time. It's going to be investment of resources. I think you need to be ready for a lot of early mornings, a lot of um, sore bellies. And I think the other thing is, you know, uh, what I've noticed with patients is once we've gone through that initial consult and we sort of have talked about what we want to achieve and the number of eggs maybe that we're hoping for, I think people feel that that's their goal. And, and I want them to be very cautious that, you know, you, you want this to be successful, you want this to work, um, but I feel people can f- feel drawn into this and, and, and feel like they have to do a lot of cycles to make this work. Mm-hmm. I think having a realistic picture in advance is important. Dr. Restakova, what myths do you think uh, need to be addressed as we're talking about something that seems rather miraculous on its face? I think John really addressed the biggest one, which is which is the myth that it 100% is 100% successful. It's not, and I think that we're up against limitations of human human biology because even um, in an ideal reproductive cycle, you're never going to achieve 100% chance of success, nor will you with IVF treatment. So I think that's the most important one. Um, but the other piece is everybody has a different type of response to egg freezing, and some patients feel very uncomfortable and 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 sore through the process. Some, some people feel fine. Um, so even if you've heard a, a horror story or a very, very, very calming experience from somebody else, uh, it's possible that you may have a different experience going through the process. Um, and ultimately, also, everybody's journey is a little bit different um, and no two protocols are alike. So um, even though two patients may seem similar, um, it's this is such a highly individualized process. So um, it's possible to have different experiences and different kind of treatment plans going through all with a different outcomes. So no two people, no two plans are alike. It's highly individualized. And even though we do our best to maximize success rates, unfortunately, they're never going to achieve 100% uh, chance of success for live birth. If you're just tuning in, this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Two years ago, I was joined by Nina Retsakova of Boston IVF, John Petroza of Massachusetts General Hospital's Fertility Center, and egg-freezing patient Nikki Richardson.
We talked about why more women are opting to freeze their eggs since the pandemic. Now, let me follow up, Dr. Resikova, and ask you this question. Um, We saw the bump, or you saw the bump, uh, in the number of women asking for this procedure during this COVID period. Do you expect that percentage rate to go down or continue to go up? That's a great question, Kelly. I I think it'll probably continue to rise. Um, We have probably sort of made up for some of the COVID-induced fertility delays um, as we were unable to offer services for several months in 2020. So I think we've probably made up for that in the latter portion of 2020. But I I do expect it to rise as there's more awareness about this uh, for individuals. And similarly, there's more utilization of these technologies by the LGBTQ community. Um, There likely will be wider utilization. All right. Now, none of us on this call are, you know, population specialists. So I'm going to make that caveat to begin with. But it is something to think about uh, this procedure, which is allowing more women to have a shot at increasing their fertility and certainly preserving, as we've said, their reproductive futures. And we are experiencing right now at the same time a decline in population. So I'm wondering doctors, if you think if this continues uh, to have great interest and more women are doing it, that will reverse the population decline because there will be more women, presumably just later, you know, going through and becoming pregnant. Dr. Estakova? It's a great question, Callie. We, we don't know how it's going to affect the, the size of our population because it could cause a lot of people to delay their fertility and then come back into um, having pregnancies at a later point. Um, It could permit pregnancies at later or more advanced ages, or it potentially could just give uh, people some peace of mind um, to go and explore um, relationships uh, more openly. Um, So I I don't know how it's going to affect things. Um, The possibility is that it could further the population decline if if people do uh, push push things off and then decide to have fewer children as a result. Um, but it's not a clear-cut correlation. Dr. Petrosa, would you agree? Oh, I wish I had that magic crystal ball, Kelly, to sort of figure that out. You know, I, I think when we look at what we're seeing now with egg preservation, you know, we're probably seeing as far as the, the number of patients that are coming back to utilize their oocytes. Once again, it's still early. We've, you know, we've only had this around for eight years. Um, we're only seeing about 10 to 13 percent of women coming back who are utilizing um, their eggs. And so it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues or if we'll start to see more and more women coming back to use their eggs. It's hard to tell. Um, I, I wish I could give you a, a better answer. So, Nikki, what do you think? You're, you're in the cohort of women who elected to do this. So what's your sense uh, among your own groups and, and uh, you know, what you're aware of? I mean, yeah, I think it could go either way. I think the decline is probably in response to just women, you know, having children later and then having less time to have, you know, as many children as people would if you started at, you know, 19, which our grandparents probably did. Um, You know, I'm very much still hoping to have hopefully two or three children, um, but but time will tell. Um, But I know many of my friends, you know, definitely want to have children. They just, I tell people, you know, Making the baby is easy, but finding, you know, a good partner to raise the child with is the trickier part. So, yeah, time will tell, I guess. Would you say for yourself that the COVID situation accelerated your decision? Um, I think it was kind of, you know, like I said, it was more about just my upcoming, I guess, 35th birthday. So it was kind of coincidence that we then had a pandemic. But, um, you know, I think when the pandemic hit, 
and, you know, just so much was out of our control. Um, I think this was something that I could really grasp onto and take control of. Um, it was a good distraction. It was something positive I was working on. Um, so it actually ended up just being the perfect timing for me. Um, so, yeah, I think it did, it did play a part. And it was just, yeah, something positive for me to focus on when the world was just um, a very, you know, scary and unknown place. Is there something you would like to make clear to our listeners about uh, just understanding exactly what the procedure is and isn't? Um, and, and certainly you're speaking for yourself, but I mean, just to knock down any myths from the patient standpoint. Yeah. And like, you know, like the physicians were saying, um, you know, everyone's different. Some people have a really difficult time with the hormones. Some feel like nothing has changed. I just think to, you know, go, to go into it open-minded, um, just, you know, trusting your body and just knowing that, you know, our bodies are incredible and I'm just so proud of what I was able to do. I think it's miraculous. Um, and afterwards, I just kept thinking, you know, my body and just so appreciative of what it can do. And yeah, just going with an open mind and, you know, no matter what the result is, just know that you, you know, you, you did your best and that's what was meant to be for you. Um, and just to be proud of doing it. Dr. Estakova, where does egg freezing fit now in uh, along the spectrum of the future of reproductive choices for women? Because we could say it's 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 not the future; it's current now. So, so where is it now on the spectrum, and and what should we be looking to that might be coming up? I think it's a widely accepted part of the spectrum. If you had asked a group of professionals this question maybe eight eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, it would have been a much more controversial part of the discussion. But it's widely accepted. Um, it's used very widely for uh, fertility preservation in the setting of cancer. As I mentioned before, um, transgender individuals may choose to preserve their fertility as well, and that's a very growing part of, of our practice also. Um, so it's much more a part of the conversation. Um, I think there's probably a lot of information that needs to be disseminated amongst the medical community about this as well. Um, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of women in their 30s uh, who are only in the care of a primary care doctor or an OBGYN. And I think it's time that this conversation starts uh, being part of the part of the picture um, come a certain point, age 30, 35, um, to discuss fertility options. So it's, it's, it's a large part of it. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more um, conversation about keeping your options open and being more proactive about discussing fertility, um, even in the setting of somebody who is presumed to be fertile and has had no infertility issues, but as a sort of a insurance policy towards future fertility. So it's a very important part of the discussion, and I'm glad that uh, we're having it today. Uh, Dr. Petroza, same question to you. Where Where is this, uh, where is egg freezing on the spectrum of reproductive health choices, and, and where might it be as, as years pass? Oh, this is a great question, and, and I echo what, what Nina said. I, I, I think this is going to be sort of our, it's going to be in our in our toolbox of, 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 of things that we can use to really um, improve the the opportunities that women have to, to sort of maintain that ability to conceive and have children. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I think we need to um, get it out there, you know, let our providers know, let our patients know, but we need to do this in a very careful way. I, I know that um, you know, our, our National Society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, has tried to, for example, in the past, make people aware of fertility 
just in general. And there was a lot of pushback because people felt that, that was creating a little bit of fear. Uh, and, and that's not the intent. And I think with this as well, I think there are some companies out there that create fear to try to get people to undergo egg banking. And that shouldn't be the case. It should be um, awareness. It should be saying, listen, these are opportunities that are available. And I think reaching out to patients in, in a way that is meaningful, reaching out to providers in a way that says, listen, just bring it up in discussion. You have a 30-year-old, you have a 31-year-old who's not thinking about um, their fertility, bringing up in the conversation and then providing those tools to engage that patient will, will, will be key because this, this is here to stay. You know, we've been freezing sperm for decades. We're, we're thankfully now able to freeze eggs. It's creating lots of opportunities, and we have to be very cognizant and very thoughtful on how we do this. Well, I think that's a great place to end the conversation. I want to thank all of you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Two years ago, I was joined by Nina Ritzakova, a reproductive endocrinologist at Boston IVF. John Petroza, director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Fertility Center, and Nikki Richardson, who decided to freeze her eggs. Coming up, the pandemic played a crucial role in the social development of young kids. Young people of any age struggle to develop normal social skills due to the social distancing and online classes COVID-19 imposed. One local organization has helped combat these developmental setbacks through mentoring programs that connect adult volunteers with young students across Massachusetts. The power of mentoring, especially for at-risk kids, that's next. This is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.